Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the reading of your word. We know that when it is read and when it is preached, it goes out and that it accomplishes that which you purpose and that it never returns to you void. So we ask that your spirit would bless the preaching of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So my view of drones has really changed over time. I remember meeting my first drone at my in-law's house. My father-in-law had just purchased a drone at a Black Friday sale. So he took out the box, took out the drone, took out the remote, put in the batteries, and he began playing with this drone. Now, the drone could fit in the palm of my hand, and so it was really easy to maneuver, uh, but he had a little bit of trouble getting it into the air at first. But then after a few attempts, he was able to get it airborne. And then after it was airborne, it would stay aloft in the air for maybe a few minutes before it would come crashing down just because it was hard to control. But then after a few more tries, he was able to maneuver it a little bit, and then he turned over the controls to another family member. And then every single family member had an opportunity to take their turn at the drone and to be able to fly it around and also to see it crash. Uh, as I played with this drone, I thought to myself, man, this makes a really nice toy. Now, fast forward a few years, uh, Josephine and I have the opportunity to go to an aviation museum. And at this aviation museum, we stumble across an exhibit for drones. And so we go in and the people who are exhibiting the drones or demonstrating them say, hey, would you like to try it out? And so we say, sure. So they have us take a seat. They put a VR headset on our heads. And through the VR headset, we're able to see a video feed of the drone in terms of where it is. And they also handed us a remote. And then we had a chance to maneuver the drone through the set course. And it was a lot of fun. And after that, I thought to myself, man, drone technology has come much further from that day when I was in my in-law's house with that small drone trying to keep it afloat. Now I can actually weave and speed through courses with it. And I thought to myself, hmm, this would make a very interesting hobby. Now recently, I had the opportunity to attend a webinar talking about weaponizing drones. And it surprised me that drones now are so large and so fast that they can even tear through the windshield of a car. There was even an example of a grenade, a frag grenade, being attached to a drone and how much damage this drone with the grenade could actually cause. And being in the defense industry, I forgot uh, to remember or didn't remember how we have so many drones now performing surgical strikes, also causing collateral damage too. And so now I thought to myself about the dangers of drones too that drones can not only be a toy, but also a hobby, but even a potential weapon. And so my view of drones has expanded, it has changed. It has changed from that simple experience in the living room to that museum and even to this webinar. And I'm sure that for many of us, as we learn more about things, our mind begins to change in regards to that topic, that once we learn about a particular topic or subject, our understanding of it begins to change. As a child, we understand math as two plus two. And then later, we discover that math is not just simple arithmetic. But then in middle school and high school, we progress through algebra, geometry, and even calculus. 
and we begin to explore the complexities of mathematics. And so as we learn more about a topic, as we learn more about a subject, our knowledge of it expands. Now it applies to a variety of topics. It could be relationships, it could be home ownership, it could be car ownership, parenting, music, painting, or even cooking. And that the more that we learn about a topic, the more our knowledge and view of that particular topic expands. And the same thing applies to our understanding of Jesus Christ as well. That the more we learn about Jesus, the more our view of him expands. And for instance, maybe an unbeliever at one time believes that Jesus is a great moral teacher because he stumbles across the line, love your neighbor as yourself, and that's great teaching. And another person may see Jesus as a prophet because he sees Jesus in the scriptures performing various miracles, whether it be feeding the crowds, healing the lame, or even walking on water, that this prophet indeed is from God. And for others of us, we may see Jesus as Savior, because when he died on the cross, he died for our sins so that we could have a relationship with God. That as we learn more about Jesus, our understanding of him continues to expand. But the question we really have to ask ourselves is, how does God want us to see Jesus? How does he want us to perceive Jesus Christ? Does God just want us to see Jesus as a great teacher? Does God just want us to see Jesus as a prophet? Does God just want us to see Jesus as our Savior and believe in his work on the cross? Is that it? How does God want us to see Jesus? Because if we were to compile all the different attributes and characteristics of Jesus Christ, no library would be able to hold all the various descriptions of who Jesus is. So to answer that question, how do we, does God want us to see Jesus, we're going to be turning to the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John, unlike the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that arranged the life of Jesus in a somewhat linear order, the Gospel of John arranges the story of Jesus according to themes. And the Gospel of John can be broken up into, well, it's about thirds. So the first third is going to be Jesus' public ministry, where John records seven signs that Jesus performs. And then you have the middle section where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death and also his resurrection. And then you have the last third of the gospel that talks about the crucifixion of Christ and also his resurrection and the resurrection accounts. Now, our text this morning is going to be focusing specifically in this last third when Jesus is on trial. And in this particular text, we're going to see three attributes, three characteristics that are highlighted in the Gospel of John that we ought to understand. That there are three things about Jesus that we ought to see in this particular text. So please turn with me to John chapter 19, if you're not there already. John chapter 19. Okay. Now, the first thing that we need to see about Jesus is that Jesus is the man, that Jesus is human, to see the humanity of Jesus Christ. We need to behold Jesus, the man. Now, immediately prior to John chapter 19, the Jewish leaders, along with Judas Iscariot, had arrested Jesus, and they 
held trial for him amongst themselves and determined to execute him by sending him off to the Roman governor, Pilate, because the Jewish leaders didn't have it within their authority to be able to execute Jesus. And they wanted to execute Jesus because Jesus would possibly incite an uprising in Judea that would lead to the Romans coming down and destroying the temple and removing authority from the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish leaders didn't want that. And so they decided to execute Jesus instead. And in order to do that, they had to have the Roman authorities issue that sentence. Now, when the Jewish leaders present Jesus to Pilate, Pilate finds really no guilt in him, but the Jewish leaders insist that Jesus must be killed, that he must be executed. And so to appease them, Pilate sends Jesus off to be flogged. And that's what it says in verse one. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, when we think about flogging, we oftentimes have in our mind the picture of Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's film, in terms of the brutality of flogging. But in terms of flogging, there's actually three types going from mild to moderate to severe. And what you saw in the Passion of Christ is the severe type of flogging. But the flogging here in John chapter 19 is the more mild form where they kind of rough Jesus up, that they beat him up. And yes, they whip him in his back, but not to the degree that that third most severe type would be like. Now, after Jesus is flogged, he has him come in, and he's beaten, he's swollen, he's scarred, and Pilate presents him before the Jewish leaders and says, Behold the man. Look with me at verse 4. It says this, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Jesus said to them, behold, the man. Now, when we hear Pilate say this statement, behold, the man, we're like, what's, well, what's the big deal? Here's the man. But that phrase, behold, the man, is actually a phrase of mockery, of sarcasm, of insult, because Pilate is saying to these Jewish leaders, do you see Jesus? This is just a man. What are you afraid of? You think he's going to be the king of the Jews, but he's a nobody. Look at his beaten state. Look at the bruises, the blood, the swelling. Behold the man. You are just afraid of a man. Now, Pilate doesn't really understand the irony of that particular statement because there is no better man than Jesus. That the humanity of Jesus demands our admiration, our praise. Because when God created man in Genesis chapter 1, he created them male and female in the image of God. That humanity was meant to image God. That when creation saw man, they would see God. But man didn't want to live under the rule and the design of God's creation. And so humanity rebelled against God. And this rebellion resulted in sin entering the world and sin preventing humanity from properly imaging the creator. Now, sin then begins to pervade through all creation, not only in our lives, but also in the creation around us. 
But when Jesus enters into creation as a man conceived by the Holy Spirit, without sin, he perfectly represents God. And he demonstrates what humanity ought to have looked like if they lived their lives in submission to him. And Jesus, even through this first third of the Gospel of John, demonstrates through his signs that he is not just man, but that he is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. When Jesus turns water into wine at Cana, he demonstrates his creative power. When Jesus heals the paralyzed man on the Sabbath, he demonstrates just as God works on the Sabbath, because if he didn't work to sustain life, all creation would cease to exist. I too, like God, work on the Sabbath. When Jesus walks on water, it reminds us of the scene of the Spirit of God dwelling above the waters of chaos in Genesis chapter 1. And as Jesus walks on water, he's saying, just as God's spirit walked above the waters of chaos, I too walk above the waters of chaos. And then when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it reminds us of God providing manna for Israel in the wilderness. That just as God provided for the nation of Israel, so I, Jesus Christ, provide food for you. And when Jesus heals the man born blind, Jesus is essentially saying, I alone can open the eyes of a sinful person to spiritual truth. And when Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, he's saying, I have power over life and death. That this is a human being that is like no other, fully God, fully man. And Jesus is presented as the word made flesh. He's a person that is always humble, always compassionate, always empathetic, always able to comfort that every word that comes out of his mouth is not only appropriately timed and properly said, but also said in a way that accomplishes that which he purposes, that he is the man that deserves our admiration. He demands our praise. And instead, he's mocked. Now, when we think about Jesus' humanity, it ought to humble us because we can never be like Jesus because he was perfect in every way. And while as we look at our lives, whether it be at our homes or our workplaces and our schools, we realize that we are imperfect in every way, that the words that we desire to speak to comfort only bring pain that our thoughts of other people are not always thoughts that are encouraging, but sometimes are filled with hatred. That our sinfulness makes us imperfect. And yet, even in our sin and even in our suffering, Jesus in his humanity understands the challenges that we face. He understands the pain. He understands the suffering. He understands the effect of the curse that Jesus as man, is something that we need to understand. That Jesus, as a human being, is something that we need to see and fully grasp. Now, the next thing that we ought to see Jesus as is that we need to see Jesus as the judge. He is the arbiter. He's the one who's authorized to judge, to sentence. We need to see Jesus as the judge. Now, when Pilate presents Jesus as a man before the Jews, the Jewish leaders continue to insist on crucifying him. And verse 6 says this. 
When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now, when Jesus makes, or when Pilate, excuse me, makes that comment, well, take him yourselves, go crucify him. It exposes his frustration because the Jewish leaders came to him expecting a sentence. Pilate gives a sentence, but they're not willing to accept it. And so Pilate is frustrated that the Jewish leaders are not abiding by his ruling. And they refuse to accept this idea that Jesus is guilt-free. Now, verse 7 continues. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to the law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of man. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now, Pilate is fearful because when he hears the phrase son of man, Roman superstition may have invoked these feelings that, oh, this person might be a divine man. And to flog a divine person is a big no-no in Roman culture. And that's what prompted him to be fearful. Now, this leads Pilate to really question, Jesus, where are you from? Now, we see this in verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, in this conversation, Pilate asserts that, hey, Jesus, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I am in charge of your life? I can either crucify you or I can set you free. And Jesus is essentially saying, no, you don't, that there is someone greater in charge here. Now, God the Father, who Jesus calls from above, is the one that Jesus reminds Pilate of that he ultimately is in control. That even though Pilate may think that he has the authority to free Jesus, he does not. Now, although it's been ordained for Caiaphas and for Pilate to work together to crucify Jesus, it doesn't excuse them from their sin of crucifying Christ. Because Pilate and Caiaphas still remain responsible for their decisions and will be punished accordingly. Now, Jesus remains in complete control of the situation because note where Pilate eventually renders his decision. Where does Pilate eventually decide for Jesus to be crucified? It's at the judgment seat. If you look with me at verse 13, this is where it's highlighted. It says this. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down or sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, this location, this judgment seat, has a resemblance, a resemblance to another judgment seat, a great white throne in the book of Revelation. That on that throne, Pilate will not be sitting there, but it is going to be the resurrected Christ who will judge both living and dead, for God has given him authority to judge. And so the irony is that Pilate, thinking that he is the ultimate judge, is not, but that Jesus ultimately 
is. And that Jesus, in this whole story, in John chapter 19, is actually doing perfectly what God is expecting him to do. And what Jesus himself is willing to do is to offer himself up to be crucified. Now, if God entrusts Jesus with judgment, then how do we fare before him? Do we believe that our good deeds would be sufficient for Jesus to render us righteous, to be innocent? Or do we realize that our thoughts, our words, our deeds deserve God's judgment and we need God's mercy? For we can do nothing to save ourselves before the judgment of Christ. So what hope do we have? Now, this brings up the last attribute of Jesus that I want us to think about, and that is his kingship. Now, we need to see Jesus as king. We need to see Jesus as our sovereign, that we need to see him as our ruler, as our monarch, and as our king. Now, the phrase or the word king occurs four times in the text. The first time king is actually used in John chapter 19 is actually a term of mockery. The Roman soldiers mock Jesus as king. First, they dress him up with a purple robe and then put on his head a crown of thorns. Uh, verse 2 says this, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe. Now, why these two particular elements in terms of the soldiers using them to robe Jesus to put on his head is because that purple garment was a garment worn by vassal kings that they would wear it as a sign of royalty. But instead of a actual purple robe, it was probably a scarlet robe that had faded over time that gave off a hue of purple. And so Jesus was wearing a worn robe. And then instead of a crown of gemstones and of precious metal, he wore a crown of thorns. Now, these thorns were not just small thorns, but some of these thorns may be up to 12 inches long, almost a full foot. And you're wondering to yourself, why these long thorns? Well, it's because in Roman coins, rulers would be drawn with rays coming out of their heads as a symbol of glory. And instead of glory emanating from the face of Christ, there would be thorns because of this crown that was put on him. Thorns that demonstrated not glory, but shame. And then the soldiers would mockingly call Jesus, Hail, the King of the Jews. And their words, while they were meant to insult Jesus, they were actually true. That even though Jesus was wearing this robe of purple, this crown of thorns, he actually was king. Now, the Jews also rejected Jesus as king as well. Because the reason why the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate was because they wanted to execute him. Because they thought that the people would try and make Jesus king. And by so doing so, like I was saying earlier, it would have incited rebellion. And then the Roman authorities would have crushed the rebellion and taken away the Jewish leader's power. Now, the first instance of this 
uh, scheming or this charge that Jesus is trying to make himself king is found in verse 7 in our text. It says, The Jews answered him, We have a law. According to the law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Now, is this true that those who call themselves the Son of God ought to be put to death? Well, if you look in the Old Testament, there were other people who were called the Son of God. The kings of Judah were also called the sons of God. Solomon was called the Son of God. And did they execute him? No. In the Old Testament, Israel was also called God's son as well but they didn't execute themselves. And so this was more of a trumped up charge to try and get Jesus executed. Now, it's also interesting when you think about this particular dialogue between the Jews and Pilate is that when Pilate refuses to crucify Jesus, then the Jews try and corner Pilate with a a political scheme. They call him no friend of Caesar because a friend of Caesar would execute any rival king that would challenge his authority. Now, these words are recorded in for us in verse 12. It says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, the words of the Jewish leaders have a particular sting to them because Tiberius Caesar, who was the emperor at that time, had a reputation for being suspicious. That if there was any sniff of rebellion, he would snuff it out. And the Jews had already complained to the emperor before about Pilate's mismanagement of Judea. And so Pilate knew that this was not a bluff, but this was a real threat that if Pilate did not execute Jesus, then the Jewish leaders would go to the emperor and say that Pilate was supporting or aiding a rebellion. And so that's why Pilate eventually decides to crucify Jesus. Now, the Jewish rejection of Jesus as king is even more explicit in their response because they called him or they called Pilate, not a friend of Caesar, meaning that we're friends of Caesar. We're willing to help Caesar execute any type of rebel. And it's even more explicit in verse 15. It says this, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And you're asking yourself, are you serious that Israel who said that God is their king is now saying no we have no king God is not our king Caesar is our king and we reject any other king but Caesar that we reject God as king and we reject his representative Jesus Christ as king as well and we see here in this text that the Jews had rejected the king that God had given them, Jesus Christ. But yet through the rejection and through the mockery, God uses these things to make Jesus king. First note again, the crown of thorns that Jesus wore. It served as a symbol of insult. It served as a symbol of mockery. But if you remember in Genesis chapter three, one of the symbols of the curse is thorns. 
and that the thorns and frustration of work would remind people of the curse. And yet Jesus bore the curse of sin on his head. And also note the time when Pilate gives the sentence for Jesus to be crucified. It occurred at noon. And not noon on any day. It was on the day of preparation for the Passover. Look with me at verse 14. It says this. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And at new time on the day of preparation for Passover, all the Passover lambs were being slaughtered to prepare for the Passover meal. And the slaying of the Passover lamb was to remind the people of Israel how the blood of the lamb covered their doors so that that the angel of God would pass over them, that their firstborn child would not be killed. And Jesus Christ, at that same moment, when other lambs were crying out, he was sentenced to be crucified, to be our Passover lamb, to serve as our sacrifice so that God would pass over us if we believed in him. So these Romans and these Jews thought that they were putting a rebel king to death, but they set forth the events that would actually lead to the coordination of Jesus as king. For he is the lamb who was slain, who is worthy to receive the scroll, the testament of God, and to rule on this earth as his king. Because Jesus indeed is king. And when we realize what the rejection of Jesus Christ has done for us, then the question is, what can we do but to obey his bidding? How can we ever refuse his instruction? How can we ignore his commands that when the perfect sinless man died so that our sins could be forgiven and that Jesus would render judgment upon us, of freedom because of his sacrifice, it should prompt us to worship. J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God, that there are typically two responses in our growing knowledge of God. It should prompt two things. First, it should prompt great humility. We are undeserving of God's salvation, and the more that we know of God, we realize how undeserving we are. And the second, it should lead us to feelings of great comfort that God, though we were separated from him, has allowed us to have relationship with him through Jesus. And that's what God wants us to see. God wants us to see Jesus as the man, the perfect man, but also Jesus as the judge who will ultimately judge us for our actions and for our behaviors. But he is also the just king who gave his life so that the judgment rendered upon us will be righteousness because unrighteousness was placed upon him when he was crucified. I remember when I was in seminary, I was trying to work through a difficult passage. So I met with my professor during office hours. And as he observed me mechanically trying to work out the interpretation of this text, he paused and said this to me. Henry, when you study God's word, when you come to know God, never lose the wonder. Never lose the wonder of God. And for us as Christians, may we never lose the wonder of the king who bore the crown of thorns for us.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are all growing in our understanding and knowledge of who you are, and that the more that we study your word, the more that we understand who your son is, the more we understand of who you are, and it should prompt us to great humility and also to great worship. We pray that your spirit would continue to help us in this journey to know you more, and that this journey would lead us to greater worship and greater love for you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.